If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Escuchas ese rugido. Sientes la experiencia de poder. La emoción de la libertad. Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to Springboard, your virtual university. My name is Albert Okran. Welcoming you on behalf of the Virtual Academy Board, chaired by Comfort. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Ratio Foundation in partnership with the Multimedia Group and proudly sponsored by MTN Polls, the Enterprise Group, UNB Bank, with support from the graphic business. This is your most inspirational show at the point of convergence for the greatest minds. Tonight, I get to interview the former vice chancellor of my alma mater, so I must be a very good behavior today. Because the person I'm about to introduce has a name symptomatic with statistics, Legon, and Achimota. And that makes you very, very curious. Professor Ernest Aite, former vice chancellor of the University of Ghana and the board chair of the African Economic Research Consortium. Prof, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on my top 10. I, I mentioned that you have three things that I would typically associate with your name. The first one is statistics. <laughs> the second one is Legon, which I hold very dear to my heart, mm -hmm. Legon. And then the third one is Achimota. I am not an Akura, but I'm married okay. to one. And if I don't yeah. mention this, yeah. I can't go home. So <laughs> I need to mention that. Well, you're a lucky man. Oh, that's what they say. Until they find out that she's rather lucky to have married than a handsome boy. <laughs> Prof, let's talk about statistics. It's been a very interesting period of our lives, and we are finding out now much more than ever that we need data for every single thing that we do. But for you, it's been your life all along. How big, from your perspective, is statistics in the life of the individual, the nation, the church, the community, everyone? Yeah, thank you very much, um, I began my academic career at ISTA, which is uh, the Institute for Statistical, Social, and Economic Research. Uh, ISTA basically uh, became the unit established between the University of Ghana and the Ministry of Finance for ensuring that uh, uh, there was always enough well-analyzed data to guide economic policy making. So even though I came from an economics and statistics background, uh, my main interest was always in uh, economic statistics, ensuring that uh, the analyzed data uh, could be fed into policy making, uh, providing the evidence that was required to uh, uh, make the right choices when it came to policy. So yes, data has been extremely important one of the things we've neglected as a nation is the gathering and analysis of data on a regular basis. You know, so we do have the uh, Ghana Statistical Service. At the time I went to work there uh, uh, during vacation as a student, it was the Central Bureau of Statistics. The whole idea was to have a, a central point uh, from which you could gather the data uh, even before places like ESA could analyze the data. Uh, with time, uh, we didn't pay enough attention to the gathering of data. And so by the time we began a lot of the reforms of the 80s and 90s, we didn't have enough data, enough good data to guide the process. Uh, I believe that uh, over time, some effort has been made to remedy the situation. Uh, but there's still a long way to go. You need good agricultural data. You need good industrial data. 
we are completely hopeless when it comes to labor statistics. Um, in terms of the financial sector, things have improved considerably as a result of private participation. But uh, one area in which uh, we are still missing a lot is the labor sector. So it's my hope that uh, as a nation, uh, we will begin to pay more attention to the gathering and analysis of data to ensure that policy making is on a solid ground. You touched on labor statistics, and obviously, even when it comes to something as basic as the unemployment situation in other jurisdictions, the data is shared in real time. They will tell you in the past three months it's gone up by this percentage or that percentage. Mm -hmm. In our part of the world, sometimes it is even a matter of debate, the fundamental, the, the, the reality of the level of un unemployment or, or the, the labor statistics that we have. Mm -hmm. Do you think that our developmental process would have been accelerated if we had a more robust statistical and data setup? Oh, the, the, there's no doubt about that. Uh, we, we, we need to have um, a structured and regular way of gathering any type of data. So it must come to you in a very consistent manner, whether it's a daily or weekly or bi-weekly and so on. So in the absence of that, in the absence of that, and, uh, in the absence of um, uh, a good institution for gathering labor and statistics, you're going to suffer. And, and, and that's what we see. So almost everything that you provide in terms of uh, jobs and uh, employment clearly is debatable. It's debatable because of how the data was uh, arrived at, how it was analyzed, who did it, and so on. So, yes, we need to put our house in order when it comes to gathering data. So we can talk about uh, labor uh, statistics. We can do the same for industrial statistics. One of the problems that we face is the difficulty of bringing informal uh, activities into the formal data gathering. Many of the um, activities that we are interested in as a nation uh, when it comes to industrial transformation, uh, many of those things are done informally. Uh, no records are kept. Um, that makes it even more difficult. So you have a structural problem when it comes to uh, discussing what the true situation is in terms of industrial development, labor associated with it, and agriculture. We, we need to do something about these things if we are serious about uh, policy making using evidence. It's obvious that when it comes to the informal sector, I've been trying to calculate any kind of data when it comes to the people who are doing um, tailoring under some tree, the, the kayai, the, the those driving the abubo. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to even, because I, I, I presume that a good national ID system, residential address system, and a, a few fundamentals will be key to even being able to collect data. That must be a very tough assignment. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, um, there has to be an incentive for people to want to regularize their activities. I don't think we've created those kinds of incentives yet. So, so long as we haven't made the effort or enough effort to get them to want the uh, activities to be known and captured formally, it's going to be, remain a, a major problem for us to resolve. Most of what we will say about the contribution of the informal sector to GDP, for example, um, is an estimate based on several things that may not be entirely accurate. Um, so it's always a matter of how far you go in determining those uh, estimates, how far you go, um, the, the extent to which people are willing to disclose information. Very possible that uh, some of the information that you are looking for might uh, disclose their own uh, uh, liabilities in the manner that they do not want to disclose. So one has to be very careful. Whatever data you get, whatever information you receive, you have to treat it with a, a pinch of salt.
Let me move on to your, the second area that I'm curious about. We'll come to your top 10, and I really am very mm-hmm. eager to hear, but I can't get you a lot to ask about tertiary education. Mm-hmm. You made a significant contribution as vice chancellor of the University of Ghana. And let me ask you I grew up knowing only three universities mm-hmm. Legon, KNUST, UCC. Mm-hmm. And those were the only three available. At that time, we couldn't even conceptualize the idea of private participation mm-hmm. and the plethora of universities. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, how many years do you think that over the past couple of decades we've made progress in the area of tertiary education? It depends on how you define progress. I mean, um, there's no doubt that today the problem is not a shortage of universities. Uh, You do have a significant number of public universities. I think that we have about 10. Every every region has a a university now. Uh, And then you have... uh, at least 70 private universities. The, the, the situation today is, as you said, vastly different from what it was uh, a decade ago, or at least a decade ago. But there are still challenges. There are still major challenges with higher education. There, there are challenges with respect to the quality of what you are getting from your higher education system. We do have some very good universities in Ghana, and we do have some horrible universities in Ghana, and it's important for us to understand that. Uh, That's what comes from not properly um, regulating them. That's what comes from uh, not paying enough attention to the standards. Um, There's a lot that one can say um, in terms of uh, how the regulatory regime has been handled, um, there's a lot one can say about the attitudes of the institutions themselves. There are many people involved in higher education who, in my view, um, have no business at all uh, trying to deliver higher education. We haven't paid enough attention to research. We seem to think, as a nation, that uh, all universities are good for is producing graduates. Whether the graduates are good or not is a secondary issue. Uh, but good universities anywhere in the world pay equal attention to research. The, the main thing that a society gets from its good universities is the generation of knowledge that can be used for social economic development. So if you're not going to pay attention to research at your universities, you're not going to pay attention to innovation Yes, you'll get something out of your university, but you don't get everything that you are spending money on. We, we do spend quite a bit of money on public universities in Africa, but uh, because it's not properly directed, it's not properly guided, uh, we, you only get a part of what universities are capable of. And that's one of the things one should change. And, uh, yeah. There's quite some significant mistrust between tertiary education institutions and universities and the regulator, like accreditation board, you always hear them complaining about the iron fist that the accreditation board has. So it's interesting that you, you think that the accreditation could be even better or stronger. Yeah, better does not necessarily mean stronger. Right. You go to, you know, uh, when you are regulating higher education, it's something that uh, pays significant attention to quality standards and putting in place structures and arrangements that will maintain those uh, standards. I don't think that uh, in our processes here, we've paid enough attention to that. Um, I'm not sure that the people we have uh, put together to manage the regulatory processes um, were necessarily the most appropriate for that. I'm not sure that the governance arrangements that uh, we put in place uh, have been the best. Um, but all of these is one will say you can improve with time. Uh, you can improve them with time. One argument that I had come up is that the institutions being supervised felt or sometimes feel that the supervising institutions could possibly be seeing them as competitors and therefore yeah. will stifle their innovation. Would that be a fair conclusion? You can't generalize. 
that I mean I, I saw a bit of it in my time. I saw um, I wouldn't say competition. Um, the established public universities. I don't think they worried about competition in that sense because they had the people, they had the history and reputation. If they had anything to worry about, possibly the loss of staff to the new institutions. Uh, when it comes to students, I mean, there are large numbers of people looking for education, so you are not likely to uh, deny them of their uh, fair share of good students. The, the biggest concern that they had was that their staff would leave. But in my experience, many of the people from the public universities who went to teach in private universities seldom resigned from the public university because they knew what benefits they uh, had which could not be matched by the private universities. There were things that probably delayed some of the uh, uh, supervisory rules that uh, came about. And many of them were linked to the lack of preparedness uh, on the part of the supervised institution to play its role. So if you have a department of whatever discipline, uh, which is supposed to uh, supervise one such department in a private university. And then within a matter of two, three years, five other institutions apply to be supervised by the same department with the same number of lecturers that they had five years earlier. Clearly, they're going to be stretched, overstretched. But because the university was going to make some money from the fees to be paid by the supervised university, they would ag agree to do it. And that was, for me, often a certain bo a bone of contention between the vice chancellor and departments. Departments that were agreeing to do something that they were not equipped to do. You know, And I, I do hope that uh, uh, these are things that are changing, are getting better with time. Uh, otherwise, we have a serious problem on our hands. And if you just join us, this is Springboard of Virtual University, interviewing Professor Ernest IET about his top 10 principles. Prof was the former director of ISA, former vice chancellor of the University of Ghana and the board chair of the new African Economic Research Consortium. Prof, if I broke your top 10 into two, let's start with your first five. What will be the first on your list, sir? Well, the, the um, most important thing for me, for anybody who aspires to be a leader, uh, is that you must be committed to solving problems. That's the most important thing, being committed to solving problems. Uh, not your personal problems, but, <laughs> like but, 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 but the problems of those who look up to you. They can, it can be family, it can be your community, it can be your nation, it can be your school, it can be, it can be whatever. They look up to you. And so it's your duty and responsibility to be able to solve their problems. The main reason why they look up to you is because they believe, they have the perception that you are capable of uh, tackling those problems. So if you don't show a commitment, you are letting them down. It can be a family that you are letting down. You know? So that for me is uh, the number one thing. Uh, the, the second thing that I, I would always emphasize is that uh, even though you have been uh, given the privilege of uh, serving your community as their leader, it's extremely important that you do not do this on your own. You do not decide that oh, because I'm the leader, I'm the one that everybody's looking up to, I do everything on my own terms. It's unacceptable. A good leader must be willing to work with others. A good leader is the one who is able to put the thoughts of many different people together. The fact that they are looking up to you doesn't mean that they, ha they have no ideas of their own. Uh, your job as a leader 
is to bring all of these together, assemble them, and then um, use that to help arrive at a, a, a path that is acceptable to everybody or acceptable to as many for us and leads to the results that you are looking for. Uh, I also say that uh, a good leader must be decisive and firm. Right. So that would be number three. Number decisive, three. Yeah, and decisive and firm. Sounds like a very interesting one. Yeah. What, what it means is, uh, you know, people are looking up to you. They don't want a leader who changes his mind or her mind every, every few days or every few minutes. They're decisive and firm. It means that after we have agreed on the way forward with you leading us, we shouldn't see you backtracking. We should see you moving forward as firmly as possible. But of course, in making that uh, transition, it, it, it is going to affect some of us, some of us who are part of the community that you are addressing. You've got to be seen to be fair to all of us. So you are being decisive, you are being firm, but you should also be fair. And these three go together. Sometimes people think that being decisive means you could be an autocrat. No. Being decisive means that we have full confidence in you not backtracking, you not reneging on agreements that we have reached, you not turning your back on us because it's expedient. So that's the third thing that uh, I will put there. The, the fourth thing that I'm interested in, uh, in terms of uh, leadership, the, the, the leader is seen by all to be accountable. Uh, is accountable in the sense that he knows that uh, he is there as a leader because we have placed him there. We have put a lot of respect uh, uh, how we deal with him. So it's obvious that he has to account to us for the things that uh, uh, we are supporting him to do. It's something that we don't see much of in our part of the world. I have also mentioned the fact that uh, a good leader needs to be ambitious. Uh, in our part of the world, sometimes you have to say, oh, this one is too ambitious, or oh, this one is ambitious. And we use ambitious negatively. It shouldn't be. Uh, we should use ambitious in a much more positive sense. So, so you are ambitious to solve the problems of, of the community. There's a very big difference between being ambitious and being over-ambitious. Oh. You know? So uh, when somebody is over-ambitious, he or she is not able to est estimate uh, what they are capable of doing. They're not able to estimate what they are capable of doing. So somebody who's over-ambitious has a very high tendency of uh, overreaching. Okay. And, and that's a problem. I hope uh, I've given you enough to... Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So your, your first five, be committed to solving problems. Do not act alone. Be decisive and firm. Four, be accountable and five, be ambitious, but not over-ambitious. Yeah. say being over-ambitious often leads to overreach. Yeah. Let me start with the first one because I have a, a, a very interesting uh, comment on that. I've been following the World Economic Forum's report on the future of jobs and the attributes that they recommend that people have in order to be relevant in an ever-changing world. And one of the interesting attributes that they recommend for everyone who wants to make progress in their careers is complex problem solving. So when you started with solving problems, I, I smiled because it agreed with that mm -hmm. research. But they went ahead to say complex, and I want, to, I want to just explore that word a bit. So you talk about the leader being somebody set there to solve problems. There are times when the problems that you face are hydra-headed, complex, unprecedented, if I may use that word, because there's no history that you can see will guide you in solving a problem that hasn't existed before, like COVID. What would you say to complexity when it comes to problem solving? You know, um, it's always good to place these situations in the right context. Uh, there, are, there are problems to be solved by a leader that may not be complex. Uh, they call for courage. 
They call for boldness. They call for decisiveness. And then there are problems to be solved at a different level, in a different context, that require you to deal with a complex set of issues. The types of challenges that a leader at the district assembly level has are vastly different from the challenges that the Minister of Finance faces or the Governor of Central Bank faces. So complexity is context-based. Uh, it's, it's driven by the nature of the, or the environment that you, you operate from. Um, I understand why the World Economic Forum will attach complexity to problem solving because they are dealing with uh, much larger global issues uh, that are made more complex by the rapidly changing environment. COVID-19 has made the world a lot different from in what anyone had anticipated two years ago. So there's no way any one economist or politician or, or manager can meaningfully predict what's going to happen this year or next year. There's no way. Uh, at best, you will speculate. At best, you will wish um, because you do not know exactly how the virus is going. Now that we have a vaccine, it's a, a, a bit more secure. Yeah. But without the vaccine, nobody would have been able to tell how things were going to change. That's where the complexity. So anybody who was in, in, in the position of a leader trying to uh, push economic decisions forward was really fighting huge odds that were stacked heavily against him over here. So I can understand what they mean by complexity, but does it apply in every situation? I like the way you just simply break this down. It must be just a statistician. <laughs> when we come back from this break, I'll be finding out your second batch of principles in my top 10. If you just join us, this is Professor Ernest IET helping us to understand his top 10 principles that have undergathered his life so far. Kojo Korea. I trade the Billy Goat. No, fall leaders in school. Too. I am sending you this WhatsApp audio because you are the group admin. Did I not sit in the same class with you? As them. It took the group more than three months to contribute only a thousand CDs for me. When it took just one week to contribute the same amount for Nana. What's your name? Looking faces. A situation like this can be avoided. Sign on to Alumni by Enterprise Life. Designed for members of all students' associations. You decide a fixed amount that covers the lives of members their spouses and two adult relations say bye-bye to unequal welfare contributions with alumni by enterprise life it's possible charlie call daniel on 0246373653 or karen on 0501627361 dream big with us enterprise your advantage <laughs> When you can go anywhere and never feel alone, how far will you go? When you have the means to make your dreams real, when will you start? When your voice can reach every ear, who will you inspire? When your money can travel faster and further than you ever could, where will you send it? When you can tell a story in every language, which ones will you tell? When nothing can stop you, and everyone's behind you, and, and the, the whole world, world awaits, awaits you. you. Don't go alone. Go with us. Everywhere, Everywhere you, you go. Aquama, UMB is proud to offer you the best business solutions possible. We have been excelling in serving Ghana since 1972, and our sole interest is to make your business succeed. We are committed to making you to become number one in any sphere of business or enterprise you are pursuing. With our experience in growing some of the biggest SMEs in Ghana, we can support you become the business leader in Okanshi, Xiaomi. 
Abusokai, or any of the SME enclaves in Ghana with our SME solutions. Our latest SME loans allows you to take a loan backed by the value of your cash flow and inventory so you can increase your trade efficiently. Speak to our business bankers or visit any of our branches now. UMB Bank, you first. Welcome back to Springboard Invest University. Today, having the privilege of hosting Professor Ernest Aite sharing his top 10 principles with us. Prof, let's go to your point number six, Prof. The uh, point that I would like to make is they need to be prepared always for the unforeseen. Prepared always for the unforeseen. When you are in leadership, um, you are always going to encounter uh, things changing, changing in an environment where you um, may be operating, but you didn't foresee, uh, you didn't foresee those changes. And when they occur, if you are not careful, if you are not a good leader, you get overtaken by those things. But that should happen. If you have a way of dealing with them, uh, so you have to think on your feet. A good leader thinks on his feet or her feet. Quickly, let's do this. Let's do that in reaction to one of the things I uh, learned when I became vice chancellor. I learned it from uh, my mentors. I said, leadership as vice chancellor is a very, very lonely proposition. You know, it's a very, very lonely proposition. Uh, there are always people who believe that things should be done differently, different from what you had uh, prepared for, different from what you had anticipated. And you've got to find a way of dealing with them. And that becomes, if you're not careful, it absorbs you completely. You spend all your time trying to second-guess people. You want to be able to do what you are there to do. At the same time, you don't want these people to distract you. To distract you. And so, it becomes a, a matter of Balancing, and uh, so in, you, how do you in this very difficult environment of people always undermining you, you second guessing them, uh, and yet being able to survive and achieve the things, the main things, without losing focus? You know, if you're a bad leader, you spend all your time chasing your so-called enemies to try to get rid of them. No, how, how do you find the balance? How do you find that balance? By, how, how did you find it? Through by preparation. You, you you walk into a meeting, you are bringing proposals to the meeting, whether it's the executive committee or academic board. You, you are bringing a proposal. One thing I did a lot of as a vice chancellor, I always had a proposal. You know, a proposal to move things forward. A proposal to let's change the uh, core system. Let's change the. Uh, Residential arrangements. Let's change. I always had a proposal, and I always knew who would stand against it, and for what reason. As I prepared for that, how were you able to anticipation? Oh, anticipation. Yes, you, you, you know from experience where they stand on certain things. Hmm? You know from experience that their objections, the things they are going to propose, will be driven by religion. Driven by ethnicity, driven by school, driven by party politics, you know it. So you know, for example, if you are going to propose something that is going to make the government of Ghana uncomfortable, supporters of the party in the room are not going to take kindly to it. It doesn't mean that the proposal itself is bad. They, for them, more important is will my government be comfortable with this? If they think no, they will move heaven and earth to undermine it. So you, 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 you do your homework by finding all the answers to their counter-arguments. So they say this, you say that. They say this, you say that. Because you are and you make rational, logical arguments in support of what you are. They get tired and leave you alone. If, if you are going to propose something that by all indications, the majority of the people in the room are going to don't waste your time, don't do it. Don't do it. It's a waste of don't time. Don't bother. You know? Not even for posterity. No. They, they, they know where you stand on it. But the last thing you should do as a leader, chair the meeting, is propose something that is going to be turned down. 
You should do your homework and do it. This thing will be turned down, so I won't waste my time with it. Does doing your homework sometimes involve canvassing the support? Precisely. So, so, so instead of going there for it to be turned down, you find ways in which you can lobby people to understand. Some of them will tell you, you know, I, I agree with you, but if I do it, I'll get into trouble with my people. You know, so but the fact that stops you from, as a leader from going to see his people or her people and talk, hey, look, we are going to do this and just leave your mind alone, not hold him. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. But sometimes their fears are not even well grounded. Sometimes they are afraid that they are, the party functionaries will be upset with them. It's not true. So you also do your homework there. There are many, many things. So, so you can't limit yourself uh, in terms of horizon to only the campus or the institution that you are dealing with. You've got to be broad-minded. You've got to, you've got to build your own allies. You know, you've got to find allies everywhere. I'm enjoying this. You can, you can find allies among students. You can find allies among your colleagues. You can find allies in government. You can find civil servants who will be your allies. Sounds almost like Alexander the Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, just to summarize what you just said, mm-hmm. you're saying that you probably be a bit naive to be restricted in your perspective mm-hmm. to only the academic side of things. Mm-hmm. And that a leader, even in the academic space, must, okay. must be nuanced enough to understand the sure. political, the sure. ethnic, the religious yeah. pressures that can be mm-hmm. brought to bear yeah. in decision making. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Well, I, mean, I can give you several examples of how, how you know. Um, you, you, I don't know if you remember, in uh, 2011, right. I'd been working for just a year, and uh, we had built four new hostels at the university using borrowed facilities, you know. Um, the conditions under which the structure had been, the structures had been put up, uh, the conditions required us to charge students higher rents for using the facilities than they were paying traditionally. Of course, there were proposals for these rents that had been made long before I became vice chancellor. Uh, of course, when we started, the students basically voted with their feet. They refused to go there. So we had finished these uh, four big hostels, and they were empty. And I came up with the idea, okay, so why don't we fix the traditional halls, uh, improve the conditions there significantly, so that it, it, uh, staying there or staying in the new hostels, you don't have a, a very different experience. That would make it easier to raise the rents of the traditional halls also. So the residence board proposed rents to be charged both in the traditional halls and in the new hostels. So the, the, the proposals came from the residence board. The, I, don't, I don't sit on the residence board. We discussed this at the academic board. We accepted it. We moved. As soon as we moved into this huge uproar in the nation, students were demonstrating. I was in Tamale. Uh, visiting the uh, adult education people there, when I saw on TV huge demonstrations in Accra, placards, item must go, item must go, you know? <laughs> and I was just thinking to myself, item must go away. I has only just arrived. <laughs> so where, where is he going? Why you to, you know, well, I wasn't bothered. I wasn't bothered. I mean, I knew I had done nothing wrong, and I knew the procedure for removing and I think this wouldn't qualify anyway. I wasn't bothered. I was extremely surprised when I returned to Accra over the weekend and I called a meeting of senior management to discuss what had happened before going into a press conference to explain to the public um, our response to the demonstration. When, I, when my, my colleagues on senior management met me on Monday morning at 9 o'clock in my office, not a single one said, Mr. Vice Chancellor, we are sorry for what you've gone through. You all knew how the decision was taken. You knew it did originate from me. It came from you. And yet, I was being hounded, and not a single That's how lonely leadership can be. When things go bad, you are alone. You're, it's Haiti. You must go. <laughs> but when things are going very well, 
you see on the university's uh, uh, intranet, oh, we've done well, UG is doing well, we, uh, we are congratulating ourselves, we all must, yes, everybody takes credit for the glory. For the glory. Everybody is happy to be associated with the University of Ghana for a wonderful thing. When things go bad, it is him. I <laughs> <do>. <laughs> you know? so, so that's how, you, as a leader, you prepare for that. You prepare for that, you know. Uh, you know they'll see IT must go. But you should also know the conditions under which IT can go. You see, so when they say IT can go, tell them IT is not going anywhere. I tell the students, IT is not going anywhere. I should jokingly, if I still do, if it was possible for the government of Ghana to suck IT, I would have been sacked at least on five different occasions. Wow. And it is because people realize that sacking a vice chancellor is not that easy. That's why they are trying to change their laws to make it easier to remove a vice chancellor because it doesn't suit the political elements. You know, if, if you have an, an IET who behaves like an IET did, it becomes expedient for any government to get rid of him. And they realized they couldn't. And so they want to change the laws to make it easier to remove vice chancellors. You run out of time, but let's take your seventh point. The uh, important point that I make is that uh, as a leader, you must be confident. You must exude confidence. But at the same time, you've got to learn not to be seen to be overconfident. Uh, it, this is linked to my earlier point about uh, ambition and not being overambitious. There are two different things. When you are overconfident, you begin to lose sight of things happening around you because you are so confident, you think everything is going to go your way. No, be confident. The people around you must believe that you know what you are about. They must believe it. And you should also show that you know what you are about. You can show that confidence by making very solid arguments. So preparation is always important. Your eight points. Yeah. The, the eight point that I, I make, which uh, I think is important for all of us, I, 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 I've mentioned it in a sense that when somebody offers you a, a suggestion, uh, be quick to acknowledge that. So that's very important for me. Um, the, another point I would like to make is that a good leader should always have a good sense of humor. You mean in the face of all the difficulties? In the face of all the difficulties, precisely. You know, you must have a good sense of humor. Uh, one thing that I'm very proud of is that no matter uh, what type of speech I'm required to deliver, uh, I always manage to uh, slide into it or smuggle into it some humor. You know, uh, even in the face of difficult uh, meetings, you know, a little bit of humor to make even your enemies laugh. You know, when, when, you, when you get your enemies to laugh, you deflate them, you know, uh, by, by laughing, some of the anger that they have harbored against you dissipates. You can't laugh and still be angry, you know. So a good sense of humor, used at the correct time, used in a manner that makes you feel relaxed, is something that every good leader should harbor. You know, I see too many leaders around who are over, overly serious. They, they are so serious that you, you are afraid of them. You, you, can't, you, believe, you begin to think that they are not human uh, because of how serious they are. Uh, it's, it's, it's important that uh, you use humor to show how accessible you are. If you're a vice chancellor and students are afraid of you, it's no good. It's no good at all. Uh, the students should not be afraid of you. It doesn't mean that they should disrespect you, but they shouldn't be afraid of you. They should be able to listen to what you say and discuss it. They may disagree with you, which is fine. It's normal. They can disagree with you, but they should not be afraid of you. So your mind will be to acknowledge that leadership is a lonely road, mm -hmm. and you tend to be consistent. Yeah. Excellent. 
Prophet, let me come to you. In all this conversation, one of the things that I is set me thinking quite a bit about is your constant reference to protagonists, those who have a different opinion, and at a point even jokingly as your enemies. Does apart from being lonely, does, does leadership also attract enemies? Oh, definitely. Uh, enemies may be too strong uh, a word in this context. Um, but um, the, the, uh, there are people whose main approach to the work at hand is to subvert what you are doing. They don't pay enough attention to what you want to do. Um, they don't pay enough attention to it. But whatever it is, uh, they are not interested. Uh, there are people who are going to lose some of their privileges as a result of changes that you, you seek to. So in, in your effort to solve the problem, you are going to introduce changes to the institution, the way it runs. The, those problems have arisen because some people benefit from the problems. So by all means, as you solve the problem, they are going to lose out. They are not going to sit there and watch you. you know. So it will be wrong for you as a leader to believe that everybody is going to come on board. The challenge for you is how to identify these people, identify them, and uh, assure them that you may lose out here, but there's something else I'm doing that you gain from. So don't worry too much. That's part of taking That's part of it. Let me come back to you on the last point about actually what I promised you. So I'm going to ask you about all student associations and how beneficial they can be to our education. But if you just joined us, we've had a wonderful hour discussing with Professor Ernest IET, former director of ESA, that is the Institute of Statistical, Social and Economic Research, former vice chancellor of the University of Ghana and the board chair of the African Economic Research Consortium. Prof has been sharing his top 10 with us. And as is our customer on the show, you can't sign up without asking you to tell us which one is your favorite. So number one, solve problems. Number two, do not act alone. Number three, be decisive and firm. Number four, be accountable to those you serve. Number five, be ambitious but not ambitious. Number six, be prepared for the unforeseen. Number seven, exude confidence and yet remain modest. Number eight, have a good sense of humor and use that at the right time. Number nine, leadership is a lonely proposition. And number ten, be consistent. And consistent with our principles here on the virtual university. Let me ask you a last question, Prof. You've been very active in OEE um, as president of that organization. Let me just ask you to close. How important are all student groups in building the educational system? What should we do differently from the perspective of um, a president of an old student group? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Albert, for this uh, question. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, for some schools, especially the older schools that we have, the older schools that have a, a large network of old students, without them, without them, the schools will have a lot of difficulty with uh, capital projects. Without them, the schools will have a lot of difficulty with maintenance. And without them, the schools will have a lot of difficulty with innovation. So they are important. I can show you schools in Ghana where more than 70% of all new investments made in the school over the last 10 years have been made by all students' associations. So they are important to the schools, and nobody can deny that. Sometimes I see uh, people trying to deny that, but it's not true. These are very, very important. It varies from school to school, um, but the, the significance is quite widespread. So 
what can we do to make this role even more meaningful and impactful? Everywhere in all these old schools, the old students are concerned about foreign standards. They are concerned about governance. They are concerned about their inability to influence improvements in standards. Um, they are concerned about the fact that the Ghana Education Service does not give them enough recognition uh, in the governance of the institutions. Even though they are represented on the uh, boards of governance of these institutions, the structure that is uh, maintained when it comes to pre-tertiary does not make their voice quite significant. In the, we had what we call a town hall meeting, and uh, here I am trying to sell to younger Akores the need to uh, contribute, to give back to the school. And they asked me questions like, uh, how do we give back to a school when we cannot influence how that school is run? How can we, we can influence the, the, the curriculum, we can't influence the teachers, we can't influence anything. So why should we give? My response has been, we will try to resolve all of these. We will, so that when you give, when you put $1,000 of your money into Achimotar School, you know exactly how that money is going to be used and accounted for. You know exactly what change is bringing to the school because we can do an impact evaluation of it in time. So it's important in my view for us to have a conversation in this country about how reforms of the pre-tertiary education system uh, will take place. Usually, when we talk about reforms, it's only being a group of uh, trained teachers, uh, trained educationists getting together to discuss what best to change. I think it's old-fashioned. Uh, there are many different stakeholders. I'm not a trained teacher, but I know how schools should be run. Uh, I'm not a trained teacher, but uh, I have a certain idea of how good schools look and what they do. I know what a student from a, a, a senior high school should be able to do when he or she gets to the university. I know how students perform at the university. And so it's important that people like me, or people who are similarly placed, have a voice in discussions of pre-tertiary education reforms. We've done many different reforms in this country over the years without paying enough attention to what the end game is going to be. And I think it's important that we deal with that. Prof, I can't say thank you enough to you for this wonderful conversation. I have enjoyed it tremendously. And if you, you've thrown light on some very big issues that I'm sure will be the subject of debate as we try to build a good society. And I want to say a big thank you to you on behalf of Comfort and I for making time to be here and for the thoughts that you've shared. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Let's continue the discussion about the top 10 on social media. Let's know which one is your favorite and why. On behalf of the Springboard Roadshow Foundation and the Multimedia Group and our partners, MTN Pulse, UMB Bank, and the Enterprise Group, and our media partner, The Graphic Business. My name is Albert Okran, saying God bless you, God bless you, and God bless you. Oh, my. 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 Oh,